Good morning, everyone. Anybody here from New Hampshire? No? Okay. That's it. There's a couple back there. So for you this morning, we have entitled uh, this morning's sermon, Live Free or Die. <laughs> so shout out to New Hampshire there. Well, the context uh, this morning um, of what we're going to be looking at in Romans chapter 6 uh, is the context, the central theme of Romans so far has been uh, the concept of justification by faith. And justification by faith, as we learned, means that we have a position in righteousness. We are positionally righteous because of what Jesus did for us. And because we have been justified by faith, we are freed from sin. Okay? So, this begs two questions. What are we freed from? And the second question is, what are we freed to do? So one of the topics of uh, Romans, earlier in Romans, was the topic of the knowledge of sin. In other words, uh, do we know that we have sinned? And uh, to, sin, to sin, we must be disobeying some kind of rule or some kind of law, right? Well, in the, uh, Romans 5 tells us in the, the early days, um, sin was around, but because there was no rules or no laws, that sin wasn't really counted. So it would have been great to live in that time, right, when uh, you could sin as much as you wanted, but because there were no rules or no laws, it wasn't really counted against you. But uh, along came Moses, along came the Ten Commandments, and later over 600 rules and laws that specified very clearly what it was that uh, the people of Israel were to do. And what that law did was specify the standard of righteousness. And once those laws came into place, there were so many of them that it became impossible not to sin. So let's take a look at Romans 3.20, which gets into that just a little bit. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we became conscious of sin. If it's impossible for us not to sin, it's impossible for us to stand before God and to be accepted by him, right? We are doomed to a rather unsavory eternity if that's the case. We cannot be uh, justified by this law and expect to go to heaven and to be with God for eternity. So in Romans 5, we learned that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and this is exactly the heart and is the good news of the gospel. That where we fall short in righteousness, Jesus stepped in and offered himself as a sacrifice for our disobedience, right? If we accept him and receive that sacrificial gift by believing in him, then we are justified by faith, and we stand in a position of righteousness before God, that leads to salvation and ultimately to eternal life. So that's kind of the context of where we are. For us then, as believers in Jesus Christ, the law is not, no longer as important to us because we are righteous because of the grace of what Jesus Christ did, through us, did for us. So as Jeremy Alexander talked about last week, we are to embrace this life giving gift of grace because we are righteous sorry 
Um, we're, we're to uh, embrace this life-giving grace because we have died to sin. We are to yield ourselves to be used for good works and not for works of wickedness. So that's the background of where we've been. And I'd like to take a look at Romans 6, verses 14 and 15 as we get into the text for this morning. And verse 14 says this, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin, because we are no longer under law, but under grace? By no means. So as we can see in verse 14, we are no longer under the law, but we're under grace. If we're no longer un- under the law, then we can behave pretty much as we want to, right? No, not so much. And so what Jeremy explained last week was by no means, no way. You can't behave as you want just because we don't, uh, we're not subject to the law anymore and we're subject to this grace. Uh, and what Jeremy explained last week was that, well, if I sin, God's grace becomes evident in the forgiveness of my sin, right? So why shouldn't I sin more so that God's grace abounds all the more and God's glorified by this incredible showing of his grace? And what we saw last week, no. That logic just doesn't hold water. So here we are um, at this point of where we stand in God's grace and righteousness. And Paul introduces a new concept here in verses 16 to 18. And let's talk about that. Verses 16 to 18, Romans 6. For you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. We got 16, yeah, hold on. Don't you know, well, I'm going to start from my notes here. Can we get 16 up there, Mark? Oh, who's up there? No, no, we don't have 16. All right, I will read it to you. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So Paul's introducing here the concept of slavery. And what he's saying here is that we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. What does he mean by this? All right, so let me ask you a question. How many of you in a normal day feel like a slave? Anybody? All right. Joe, put your hand down. (laughs) I'm going to pick on you today. Bring it on. Um, What is a slave? A slave is a person who is the property of another person. And he is fully submitted and committed to whatever that person would have them to do. Wholly subject to the person who owns them. So one of the marks of being a slave is that free will and free choice go out the window, right? So you can't do what you want. You can only do what the master wants you to do. You have no choice. And it is important to note that your last choice that you ever have really before you become a slave is the choice to offer yourself as a slave. So this is an important point. We usually think of slaves as someone who's captured, you know, maybe in the jungles of Africa against their will and dragged and, 
you know, forced into slavery. And of course that happens. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. Um, we'll look at, at that in a minute. Uh, there comes a point where you can choose to offer yourself as a slave. And once you have made that offer and been accepted as slave, that's like your last free choice, right? We'll talk about that more in a minute. So why would Paul use this language? Why would someone choose to be a slave? So what side of that conversation would you like to be on if someone was choosing to be a slave? I think I know. So imagine I go out to lunch with Joe Gore after church, and uh, we're sitting down. I said, Joe, I've been thinking about uh, committing my life to slavery, and uh, I thought maybe you'd be the guy that I'd like to do that with. Would, would you be my master? I'd like to commit myself to slavery to you. And Joe's like, yep, yep, that would be good. I can work with that. I got lots for you to do. And, um, but, you know, that's not the kind of conversations, right, we, we're, we're expecting to have. Paul is talking about here about people in that time who were in extreme difficulty, a debt that they couldn't pay off or, or something worse. So if you had this debt that you couldn't pay off, one of the ways that you could get out of this debt was to offer yourself as a slave to the person to whom you owe the debt. Then the debt would be canceled. So you could make that choice and offer yourself to that person. And once you did that, you were done. You were a slave until uh, you were released or until you died. Perhaps uh, you have a loved one that was in big trouble and um, you offer yourself on behalf of that loved one to someone and say, look, if you let my loved one go, I will become a slave for you for life and I'll do whatever you want. That might be another way you could offer yourself as a slave. So it's really important to understand this concept of offering yourself as a slave because that's exactly what Paul's talking to, about and what could have been happening in that time. So it's at this point that Paul's metaphor for slavery really starts to get pretty heavy. Um, because as a slave, you are no longer your own. When you become a slave, you have a new identity. So right now, uh, my name is Paul Fleming. Uh, you know, I have a family. I have an identity. My identity as Paul Fleming is something that I can hold on to. Uh, if Joe accepts my offer of slavery... Uh, to become a slave for him, once he accepts that offer and I sign that piece of paper, I am no longer Paul Fleming. I will be referred to as Joe Gore's slave. My identity is different. My identity now becomes one with the master to whom I serve. So keep this in mind, this concept of identity, because that's really important part of slavery, an important part of where Paul is going with all of this. So here's the kicker in the heart of where Paul is going with this passage, that like it or not, you are a slave. And you've either offered yourself as a slave to sin or as a slave to righteousness. And uh, anybody remember Bob Dylan? A few of you. Fred, yes. Do you know Bob Dylan's almost se is 70 years old? Man, that's frightening. Anyway, you got this. <laughs> Bob Dylan. He said never trust anybody over 30, that's why. So, anyway. Sorry, Mom. Uh, Bob Dylan said this song, You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, 
but you're going to have to serve somebody. I think he got this song right out of the back half of Romans 6 here, because it's exactly what we're talking about. (laughs) Admit it or not, we have all offered ourselves first as slaves to sin. Before we knew Christ, we thought we had a choice. But the fact was, we'd only choose to sin. And so, in that, we have offered ourselves as slaves to sin. There really was no choice. As it says in verse 16, you are slaves to the one you obey. So, how does sin make us a slave? How does sin master us? Well, I can tell you in one word, lust. Lust is a passion for things of the flesh. And whatever your passion is, whatever your lust is, it becomes all-consuming. It becomes what you think about. Whether it's money, whether it's physical pleasure, um, whether it's food, alcohol, drugs, this is what drives you. This is what you, you, you lust for. All right, so listen carefully to this. The real master, as you're a slave to sin, the real master is lust. And sin is the work that you do for this master. All right, you got that? All right, so the real master is lust, and sin is the work we do for the master. When lust calls, what do we do? We go to work. And not only do we go to work, we go to work eagerly. When the urge is hit, we're only too happy to satisfy that urge. The order from the master comes in, and we're only too happy to obey and to comply with whatever task that the master gives us. Yes, sir, I'll get right on that job of making sure that internet site is working properly. Yes, sir. Uh, Yes, sir, I will hold up my quota, quota of Budweiser consumption. It's good for America, and I love Clydesdales. (laughs) So clearly, before Christ, sin was a master over us. And some of us, for some of us, where we were in our position to this master, in our position with lust, it has been bad. And for some of us, it's still really difficult. And just exactly how bad does this master of sin get? Let's take a look at Ephesians 4.19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So clearly, the master of sin at work in our lives does not is relentless. He doesn't let up. And he drives you to this continual thirst for more. If sin is your master, if you are a slave to sin, you are on this lustful path for more. And it's a downhill spiral. And verse 16 in Romans 6 said, says that this leads to death. Let's take a look at Rome, uh, Romans 6.16 6, again, if we've got that. Don't you know that you are slaves to the one whom you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. 
So again, your identity is of utmost importance. You should be continually asking yourself, who am I? When we are slaves to sin, we are encompassed by sin. We live it, we breathe it, we eat it, we relish sin. It is not surprising then that we're in this state of sin, that we can't really think clearly. We can't really see clearly. It's not surprising then that we might be living with a lie. A big part of sin is lies, right? And ultimately, we're all living the same lie. And that lie is this. I am not a slave to sin. I am not a slave. I am the master. This is a huge lie. When you are a slave to sin, you are a slave to sin. But we delude ourselves in thinking that we are the master. I am in control of my destiny. I am in control of my habits. I have a very balanced and healthy diet. Barley and hops is good for carbs. Red wine is full of antioxidants. And I am convinced that the worm at the bottle of, te- the worm at the bottom of the bottle of tequila is very good protein. So I have a totally covered, a very healthy diet. I'm in control of what I'm doing. But when we are slaves to sin, you can see that your identity becomes warped. Our identity is wrapped up in ourselves. And what this means is that we become the master, we become the king, we are the master of our domain. Right. We worship ourselves and we worship the sinful activities in which we partake. Serving sin is serving self. And serving self is to acclaim yourself as God. And this Acclaiming yourself of God is the most acute form of blindness that you can have, and it's ultimately the root cause of our path to death when we follow sin. Does that make sense? Okay. And we know inside that all these things that we're doing wrong are wrong, but we lie to ourselves. And so I really love uh, verse 32 in Romans 1, one one of my favorite verses Um, check this out, verse 132 in Romans. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So not only do I do things that are wrong and enjoy it and love it and relish it, I just totally approve and applaud my friends who do the same. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You can figure that out. But the bottom line is this. As a slave to sin, you will never recognize your identity as a slave. And you will never acknowledge that you are the property of your master, lust. It won't happen. You'll lie to yourself. Are we all uplifted now? Hmm. Ah, well, what Paul is doing is comparing and contrasting our former way of life in sin with the way we should be living our lives now as followers of Christ. Before we go on, let's take it to the, the last half of our text, uh, which is Romans 19 to 23. 
<clears throat> I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. When you are slaves to sin, you are free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul explains in verse 19 that he's using the examples of slaves because it is a way to explain a pretty difficult concept. We'll get into this a little bit more, but translated in the New Living Translation, Paul says this, I speak this way using the illustrations of slaves and masters because it is easy to understand. But the examples of slaves falls short in several ways, which we'll explore shortly. I think what Paul is saying is that I would explain this in a different way if I think you'd get it, or if I could explain it better. Uh, but I'm going to try to keep it simple, so I'm going to stick with this slave metaphor. And we're going to expand on it a little bit in a few minutes. The slave metaphor works pretty well for the idea that we're enslaved by sin and that we're, uh, we're serving a master called lust. We are captured by sin to do its work but the slavery metaphor falls short. It's woefully inadequate to describe the work of God's grace. And so we're going to talk about that some more. So what does it mean to become a slave to righteousness, a slave to God? First of all, if you're a Christian, you have already offered yourself as a slave to God. Really, you might say, I don't remember signing up as a slave to God. But let's take a look at the confession of salvation in Romans 10, verse 9. Throw that up there, Noah, for me. Romans 10, 9, if you got it. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. A confession is a declaration, right? If you are saved, you are declaring that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that he is your king, and that he is your master, right? And in the rather poor metaphor of slavery, we're saying that Jesus, we are slaves to Jesus Christ. We don't really think of it that way, but that's what Paul is trying to say here. So even though this kind of concept of slavery in regards to Jesus falls short, let's take a look at some of the things about slavery and our relationship with Jesus that do make sense. Uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions and see if you would agree with these. First question is this, uh, or first statement is this. I belong to Jesus. Do you agree with that statement? Yes. Oh, pretty much everybody says yes. That's good. Um, I am not my own. Everybody agree with that? Okay, good. God has complete dominion and sovereignty over me. Zach, do you agree with that? I got less yeses each time we go along there. 
but sounding like a slave so far, right? You belong to someone else. You are not your own. And someone else, God, has complete dominion and sovereignty over, over me. How about the last one? I do everything God tells me to do. I obey all of the commands in the Bible. I didn't hear one yes there. A lot of chuckles. Okay. The reason Paul is encouraging us in this idea of being slaves to righteousness, um, even, you know, even though we, 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 he's saying that we are sl- slaves of righteousness, even if we don't know it, the problem is that most of us aren't living this out. And I think our chuckles kind of play that out. And Paul's encouraging us to say, look, you're slaves to righteousness, and you need to live this out. So we're going to talk in a few minutes about how to live that out and what that means and what it means to be a slave to righteousness. But I want to just take like a couple of minutes and make a side point here, which is, is pretty interesting, something I, I uh, sort of came, in, uh, came across as, and realized as I was studying all this stuff. If you were a slave to sin, right? We all agree that we, we, before Christ we were slaves to sin. You had a master, right? You had this master of sin, this master called lust. But once you're a slave, the whole definition of a slave is that you can't unslave yourself, right? That's what being a slave is. You have no choice. You are a slave forever. If you're a slave, you can't just go and decide that you're going to be free now because you wouldn't be a slave. You can't leave your master unless your freedom is purchased number one, or you die. Your freedom could be purchased probably at some ridiculously high price, and if you're a slave, you're not getting any money anyway to work, so it's kind of a stupid concept for a slave to buy his freedom unless someone else buys your freedom. And of course, if you die, your slavery ends, but most people, when they die, they aren't very free after that, confining in that box. Um, but when we consider what Jesus did for us, and this is, this is the cool thing about this, we find that when he died, he paid a ransom for us. He paid the price for us to be released from sin, from the bondage of sin. He set us free. And the price that he paid for us was his own life and his death on the cross. So then, because of his death on the cross and his payment for us to be released from slavery, we are set free from sin and we no longer have to answer to the master called sin or the master called lust. We are legally able to offer ourselves to a new master, righteousness, because of what Jesus did for us. And as we give ourselves to this new master righteousness, what what are we doing? We are submitting our lives to God. But that's not all. As Jeremy shared last week, our baptism made us one with Christ and we have therefore died with him. And if we have died, then the master of sin no longer has ownership of us. So this is kind of interesting because we have, we didn't physically die, but because we identify ourselves with Jesus in baptism and identify ourselves with Jesus' death through baptism, it is 
his death is counted to us, and we are counted as dead to sin. So God is so concerned that you get away from sin that not only did he purchase your freedom so that you could be released from this master, but he made it so that legally you are dead so that that master can't taunt you after and try to get you back. Does that make sense? He's covered you two ways. This is, is really exciting. So anyway, that was my side note, but um, it's pretty exciting to see how God's plan of redemption for us is just fully covered in every way. So back to where we were. Why aren't we living out our servitude to righteousness? Why aren't we doing everything that God wants us to do? There's probably several reasons for that, but I think for most of us it's because we don't understand this concept of grace. If we don't understand grace, we can't understand the fullness of the gospel. I was a Christian for about seven years before I first asked the question, what exactly is this grace thing anyway? Can you imagine? Seven years. And I remember the conversation with the pastor of a new church that I was attending, and I said, I keep hearing this word grace over and over again. Like, I don't know what it means. And he gave me my first sort of inkling into that. And ever since then, my understanding of this word has grown. So let's talk a little bit about what is grace. And if you can understand that a bit more, then you can begin to understand how you can walk this life of slavery, being a slave to righteousness. So what is grace? Grace is the very nature of God. And God is uh, unchanging in his essence, as grace is, but it's limitless in its expression and manifestation. So great, that's pretty easy. Um, so no matter where you are in your walk with God, this concept of grace, you will always grow in your understanding of what grace is because it's, it's like limitless, okay? Uh, I know that's not very helpful. Um, <laughs> but let me give you four sort of uh, pictures into grace, and it's going to be very limited. I'll give you four pictures. First of all, grace is a position or a situation. You are in a state of grace because God loves you and forgives you. You are justified. You are positionally righteous. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve this just being justified by faith. You don't deserve this positional righteousness, but you have it anyway. This is grace. The second one is you have the divine favor of God. He looks upon each one of you as his favorite. You are the apple of his eye. If you were sitting at the dining room table with God, he would give you the biggest piece of pie, right? He looks upon you as a favored son or daughter. He sees no fault in you. That's grace. The third thing is that grace is a source of power. Let's take a, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 9 says this. But he said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
the fullness of God's Spirit resting on us and working on us, working through us, is grace. And lastly, as Corey Farkas so eloquently talked about a few weeks ago at the talent show, grace is symbolized by a one-sided covenant. Only God would make a deal where he commits to be 100% faithful to his promises to us, but our transgressions don't break the covenant. God's covenant to us leads us to salvation and sanctification, and no matter what we do, he's always there to make sure that we are going where we're supposed to be going. This is grace. You wrap all those things up, and you have a position of uh, justification by faith, you have divine favor, you have power from God, and you have this one-sided covenant that God makes with you that, that he sticks to his side of the bargain, and you don't have to. That's pretty amazing. So when we really understand God's grace and his exceedingly abundant love for us, something changes within us, right? We hope. And hopefully we begin to appropriate or take hold of this grace that God has given us and use it in our lives. We begin to experience God's love. We begin to see God's hand at work in our lives. In everything that you do, in our relationships, you see God's hand at work. In our jobs, we see God's hand at work. In our families, you see God's hand at work. And we begin to experience the power of God's Spirit in our walk. And as this happens, we become really grateful. And when I have times like that, you, know, you just want to fall at the feet of your master. You want to worship him. You want to praise him. And when you want to thank him for all these cool things that are going on in your lives. So, how do we get there? How do we become slaves to righteousness? Over and over throughout the New Testament, it gives this command or this uh, charge to live by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, the desire to sin begins to diminish. Let's take a look at Galatians 5.16. So I say, if I live by the Spirit, I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify, or gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Live by the Spirit. What does this mean? First of all, living by the Spirit means knowing and abiding in God's Word and God's truth. Reading the Bible, studying the Bible, listening to teaching, being here this morning, listening to God's Word, this is a part of living by the Spirit. Letting the Spirit lead is a part of li living by the Spirit. Let's take a look at Romans 8, 13, and 14. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you die, which is what we've been talking about all morning. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Being sensitive to the leading of the Spirit comes with spending time with Him. In the Word, in prayer, in our worship time. Sin is not a silent master. Would you agree with that? Sin speaks. It tells you what to do. 
how much more will God speak to us? Will he guide us and will he direct us? We need to sit at the feet of God and learn to listen. This is living by the Spirit. And the Spirit brings wisdom in all things. We need wisdom to live rightly. Wisdom is just means knowing what to do, knowing the right thing to do. That is wisdom. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 1.30. Jesus is our wisdom from God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So to live rightly, we need wisdom. And Jesus Christ is our wisdom. We can draw on him. Over and over, it says in the New Testament, cry out for wisdom. And in the Old Testament, always cry out for wisdom and it will be given unto you. In Romans 6, 4, um, it says, walk in newness of life. Paul compares this new life that we can live in Jesus with the life that Jesus had after the resurrection. Because he died and was raised anew unto life, by the resurrection, by this very same power, we are raised to walk into life as well. We can walk in newness of life in the power of the resurrection, that same power that Jesus was raised Jesus from the dead. This is life-giving. This is what we should be drawing upon as we are walking this life of slaves to righteousness, this life-giving power. You should just be lifted up and, and just excited and zealous for the things of God. And it's that life-giving power that God gives us to do that. So doing those things then, your life can become a vessel for God to use as he sees fit. And you can offer yourself to him, as Jeremy said last week, as instruments of righteousness, tools for God to use for good works. We can be empowered by grace this grace that we're talking about can bring us power and can empower us in all the things we can do. There is strength laid up for you in this covenant of grace that God has made with you if you'll just take a hold of it, okay? For sin shall not be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. So like I said, the slavery example falls a little bit short. So I just kind of want to finish by giving another example, um, and that is the example of a warrior or a soldier. And uh, some of you have spent some time in the service, and I know uh, Mike Costa is a Marine, and um, at some point in his life, Mike Costa was free. (laughs) He thought he was free. And uh, he said, I think I'm going to, I'd like to be a Marine. And he probably had a lot of reasons that he wanted to be a Marine, to serve his country, to bring honor to his country, to bring honor to his family, all of these things. And he makes this choice to sign up for Marines. That was the last choice that you got to make, wasn't it? You signed that piece of paper and you become a Marine your choice goes out the window. You're not really a slave, because I think you get paid, right? But it's pretty close. (laughs) Your choices become extremely limited once you show up for boot camp. 
So listen to the similarities. The officer or the sergeant or the leader becomes what? The master. His word is law. If things are going well, and Mike is in a, in a, in a good platoon or a good group, uh, sorry, I don't know all the military terms, uh, he's in a good place with his leader, he loves his leader, and his leader loves him, and Mike would do anything to please his leader, and the leader would do anything to make sure that Mike was growing in his uh, abilities as a soldier. The soldier would train hard to keep his body fit and hard, and the soldier also makes the choice not to indulge in the comfortable lives of others. He just made this choice. Not, I'm going to live in a tent or I'm going to live on a, in a bunk in a dorm with 50 other guys, whatever the case may be. Uh, it's different. And when set with a choice to obey his leader or to do something else, there is no choice. He obeys the leader. And there's all kinds of rules and laws, but Marines and Rangers, they have this code. And one of the parts of the code is you never leave a man behind. So if they're in a difficult situation in the field and uh, you know, things aren't going well and somebody gets wounded, rather than leave a man behind, they would stay in a disadvantaged fighting position to save their buddy and to bring him home. There's no choice. The choice has already been made when he signed the piece of paper to become a Marine, that he would obey that code. There's never any choice after that. And lastly, the warrior is sure of his identity. In basic training, the soldier is constantly reminded of who he is. He is constantly being reminded that he is no longer his own. And he is constantly being reminded that he is owned by his new leader and by the Marines. So I'll leave you with these few questions. Are we constantly reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ? That we are no longer our own, that we belong to him who died for us. Do we understand the incredible fullness of God's grace? Not only are we saved, but we are saved from something. We are saved from the bondage of sin. We are saved to something, to do something, to live lives of righteousness. And this is where the slave metaphor falls so far short. We offer ourselves to God as, as servants because there's no other place that we would rather be. We would rather be at the feet of our master than anywhere else in the world. This is not slavery. This is freedom. Amen.